Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Well, there is a whole lot to get into in this edition of the Golf Central podcast presented by Callaway Golf. I'm Ryan Ladner, soon to be joined by my colleague Rex Hogan. Yes, we had the tournament of the year non-major division at the BMW Championship, won by Patrick Cantlay in a thrilling duel, six-hole playoff with Bryson Shambo. We, of course, had more drama with Bryson, not just a playoff loser, also a run at 59 as well as other assorted jeering and heckling that he endured at Caves Valley. Tour Championship is set for either the top 30 or the top 29 if Patrick Reed is unable to go. And of course, the U.S. Ryder Cup picture is getting just a tad bit clearer with the six automatic qualifiers. And now Steve Stricker, the captain on the American side, having one more week for players to audition to make that roster. Now, but at first, before we get into all of that, Callaway staffer Eric Van Royen is clearly one of the hottest players in the world right now. The month of August alone, he won the Barracuda Championship for his first PGA Tour title, posted a top 10 at the Northern Trust, and over the weekend, he carted a final round 65 to earn his spot in this week's Tour Championship. He's a new dad, he's playing some of the best golf of his career, and Eric recently talked about his big goals, his family, and a whole lot more on Callaway's original series, The Jump. You can watch all new episodes of The Jump right now on CallawayGolf.com. Well, right now on this podcast, we are bringing in Rex, who had a very busy Sunday. He FaceTimed me earlier so much uh, when on. I was spending time with my family and my very pregnant wife. Rex not only had questions about how to uh, smoke his ribs at two, 225 in his Oklahoma Joe, Rex also had questions about his fantasy football draft, uh, which was a few hours away. So Rex, A, how did the ribs turn out? B, how did your draft turn out? And C, if you have any other thoughts on uh, how Sunday and the BMW Championship unfolded, please, uh, you can uh, make us aware of those as well. Your wife was so unhappy. I have never seen someone so miserable sitting on a couch just doing nothing. She has like the SPD or whatever um, that apparently just makes it feel like your body is ripping apart. So we, oh, are, very, we are very, we're very much... Uh, ready for these next 10 days to be over with and we can welcome the, the newest and final member of our family. And I noticed you tiptoed out of the room very quietly to take this call after. I'll leave you alone now, dear. You don't have to listen to Rex's nonsense. There's no reason for you to hear this. Oh yeah, he's just saying hi. Yep, 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 bye, 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 bye. We gotta go, we gotta go. Uh, ribs turned out good. Probably the best ribs I've ever done. To, uh, tip the hat to you. Uh, that, that's from my wife. What was the key? What was the key for those? Not for me. I cook it less. I think I was overcooking it. I don't think I was spending it. They, they weren't spending enough time in full. Sure. I was too worried about keeping it right at 200 and trying to be technical with it. And I just, I just need to. 200's too low. You got to break down the collagens. Uh, I don't know what that means, but they were very, very good. I enjoyed it. The draft was okay. I don't know. Who did I, you I, take at six? Uh, who did I take at six? Uh, Adams. Adams was my first pick. Devonte Adams. Mm. All right, who would you get in the second round? Uh, you're going to make me look that up. I don't want to. Now, the, the important parts about all this is... Boy, it really I, must have been a memorable draft. Yes. <laughs> the uh, the, the important part here is I your, didn't... The two cornerstones of your team you, can't, you can barely remember. And no one cares about my, my fantasy football draft, nor your fantasy football draft. But I did wait until the fifth round to take a quarterback. So that I took some pride in that one compared to what I've done in the past but i did spend sunday early. that still seems early we're gonna have my draft next week so we can we can break this down to those mock drafts i looked at had it around fifth fifth round sixth round somewhere around in there for who for who 
Uh, well, Patrick Mahomes was gone, so I'm not. He wasn't there in the fifth round. I got uh, Lamar Alexander in the fifth round, which I felt pretty good about. You mean Lamar Jackson? I'm sorry, said Lamar Alexander. Lamar Jackson, yes. Maybe I picked Lamar Alexander. That would be terrible. How do I? How do I know that name? Uh, I think that's somebody. I have to Google it. Anyway, as far as the golf goes, uh, probably the best Sunday of golf. And you, you took it into the non-major division. I don't know that I'm excluding that that finish, even from some of the finishes at the majors this year. And I always feel like whenever well, US it's a Open was U.S. Open was pretty good. U.S. I mean, Open was nine, very good. Uh, one shot of lead. And the Masters was entertaining, but I, I don't know that. I mean, I don't know the Open Championship was entertaining, but I would say yesterday was was better just from a suspense standpoint because of all the different elements to it. There were so many layers to this story. I mean, Patrick Cantlay is not the most effusive guy, and and you had him against Bryson DeChambeau, who has become this public enemy number one that we're going to talk about. He's become this sort of shell of the man that he used to be. A lot of made putts, a lot of missed putts, a lot of missed putts for Bryson in key moments, which I think that's something that we could probably dissect for days if we were going to actually look into it. There's a little bit of a concern there, I thought, when he walked away, and it had nothing to do with the fans heckling him. But no, I, I thought the finish, I, I wouldn't even put it in the non-major category. Maybe you're right, behind the U.S. Open and maybe the Masters. It, it was the best of the year by far. The Masters with Hideki, the tournament was a was a snoo run Sunday until 16 with Xander rinsing it. I mean, I would I, I think I, I think I would put it at number two. Um, number two tournament of the year. The US Open was absolutely incredible. The names that you had up there. This was basically a duel between two players. Not not that it wasn't entertaining because it was an incredibly entertaining final round. Uh, you I think we just prefer uh, to have more players in the mix. That is very much nitpicking. Uh, my my takeaway, of course, uh, on Sunday was the play uh, full credit to Patrick Cantlay. Just some of the numbers are, are eye-popping for what he did at Caves Valley. Think about this, Rex. 537 feet worth of putts. He gained 14.577 strokes on the field, on the greens. That is absolutely mind-boggling. If you look at some of the past performances of, of typical winners in the PGA Tour, yes, they, they do have to putt well. But you're looking somewhere, let's just say safely in that plus three to five range, right? For a winner plus 14 and a half is just absolutely incredible. The putts he made on 14 after getting chirped at by Bryson for walking behind him. Was it a great salvo there? 16. He, he stayed in the mix uh, with a, a bogey. There would have been absolutely uh, a killer there. The final hole of regulation uh, making that 20 footer uh, just to force overtime. And then of course um, some more heroics, um, in, in the six-hole playoff as well. So Patrick Cantley has really established himself, in my opinion, as one of those cold-blooded closers and, and players in golf. Just this season alone, I think back to the Zozo at Sherwood when he chased down not just John Rahm, but also Justin Thomas in that final round. You think of the Memorial just a couple of months ago, the tournament that you covered when John Rahm uh, was forced out with covid it was between Cantlay and Colin Morikawa, the Open champion, and Cantlay prevailed in that one. And now he took down Bryson DeChambeau, who this is a golf course that was absolutely tailor-made for his new skill set, just bashing it anywhere with basically no consequences. There was very few hazards on that golf course. Bryson shooting 27 under par, the lowest score by a non-winning player in PJ tour history uh, for him to beat that caliber of players just this season alone and to do it with seemingly no pulse and just kind of this psychotic easiness to him. Um, to, to me, it, it took Cantley to another level, not just in the world ranking where he's now number four, but I think just in the, just the way that he's perceived among his peers, even. And the part that's going to get lost in that six hole playoff. And there was a lot of give and take and a lot of fireworks and a lot of things to get excited about. But what got lost to me was, when Patrick bogeys 17, when he hits his tee shot into the water, in my mind, I'm walking away to go enjoy my ribs that I've been working on all day. I literally, I literally walked outside. I literally walked outside to fire up the grill for some burgers. Yeah, yeah, me too. Like, I, I, I'm like, all right, it's over. It's too bad. He, he makes the eight-footer for bogey, which you would think, well, that, that's really not going to give you much. And so to show what he was able to do coming down the stretch after making that kind of mistake, you're right. It was clinical. I, I would wonder on some level, because they're such vastly different players, that had to get under Bryson's skin. Like, just to watch him methodically work his way around 
do what he did to this golf course in a way that Bryson probably doesn't connect to because it's not the game that Bryson plays. I mean, that is a psychological advantage that Patrick has to have on so many players. It, it, I have, I'm going on a limb here. I'm guessing if Steve Stricker smiled about anything on Sunday, it was that. Uh, yes, because it certainly wasn't the relationship between those two players. And, and here, and here, I thought Rex that the Bryson Brooks dynamic and relationship was going to be the frostiest in the U.S. team room. <laughs> These are two players in Patrick Cantlay and Bryson DeChambeau who clearly do not see eye to eye on much. Patrick Cantlay uh, does not give a damn about basically anything, any or anyone, um, and that's why he, to me, is is so respected among his peers. He just does not care. And so I don't think there was any player who was better suited to handle the circus. And we can get into this, the circus that goes along with playing with, with Bryce Nishambo. You would think about a couple of weeks ago, the tournament I covered in Memphis and Harris English is clearly not built and not ready for that type of environment that, that Bryson is bringing that whole circus atmosphere weighed on Harry in a way that did not allow him to, to play his best golf. Canley just, just gets in his own, little zone he's not distracted by much and i think he i think it actually makes him focus um and, and heighten his his awareness just a little bit more of what he's doing because if if you say that that the way cantley's playing gets under bryson's skin the conventional wisdom would be that the way bryson was playing would get under to cantley's skin right like a world-class player being out driven by 30 or 40 yards and a, the guy's just making birdies from everywhere even if he's Care less. I mean, that, that would drive, that would care drive less. you nuts. I mean, you're right, but Patrick couldn't care less. And if he did... He's wired differently. The dude is absolutely wired differently. He's cold-blooded. He's a cold-blooded killer. I, I want to get into the circus. We keep dancing around it. Let's just go ahead and get into the circus. We can start... I don't know. And there's a couple things that came to mind. So, long story short, Bryson was heckled throughout the, the week as he's been heckled pretty much this all season new. long. Yep. And as he's walking off 18 green after the final playoff hole, someone says, good job, Brooksy. I think that's what's the exchange. And I, I've read various accounts of it. And it, it was it was frightening on some level because I can imagine a day, I can imagine a time when Bryson has had enough and he snaps and he does something that he regrets and that isn't good for golf. And the various accounts that I read was that he made a move towards this person and then instructed the police to escort him off property. But the part that resonated with me was, the conversation immediately turns to, okay, something needs to be done about this. The tour, the commissioner, something needs to be done about this. And I just watched a documentary on Netflix. You might've seen it called Malice in the Palace, which was oh, about yeah. terrific, Indiana paper. Yeah, absolutely phenomenal. The one thing that stood out from that, that seems to apply to what we're dealing with now is when David Stern comes down on the players, the Indiana players for going into the stands and hitting the fans with something that he couldn't put up with. He was asked, was the decision unanimous? I guess the, the biggest of those was Ron Artest was suspended for a year. And he said, yes, it was unanimous, 1-0, which meant that he's the one that made that decision. No one else is going to make that decision. In this particular case, Jay Monahan does not have that weight. Anything he may want to do is going to be clouded by the idea that he's going to be limited. He cannot unilaterally say that, okay, everyone's going to get kicked out if they say this. Because fans will just come up with something else to say that's going to get under his skin. And this isn't going to stop as long as we keep making an issue out of it. And it's not going to stop because we're not going to stop making an issue out of it. So what's the solution here? I've heard various theories. I, I've heard the alcohol sales theory where they should stop alcohol sales after the back nine. From my experience, at least, and this has been going on for a number of months now, I think it really um escalated at the memorial which you were covering uh, it went to another level at the u.s open which we were both covering um i was there in memphis when bryson imploded on the back nine 41 it clearly got messy there with a bunch of brooksy calls as well where he was clearly getting frustrated by this i don't think that's the answer i don't think you can all blame it on guys just being drunk and wanting to get a rise out of out of bryson to me this is basically what happens on social media being played out in real life <laughs> where People are delighting in the idea of trolling someone who is more famous, wealthier, uh, less likable, whatever the case may be. I mean, you see that every single day. We've both been subject to this on Twitter where you just see people just trying to get a reaction. And usually when you do and you do get some sort of reaction, you, you tend to back off, right? Like you, you, never, you, you never are as tough as you want to seem 
keyboard warriors. And this is essentially what's happening. If you read some of these depictions of what happens Sunday at Caves Valley, what typically happens is Bryson walks past and then the fan does a, does a, a little barb at him. Like they're not doing it face to face for fear that Bryson's going to deck them. They're doing it in a cowardly, loud, cowardly way, just throwing a grenade and hoping that it, that it lands on him. I don't think it's necessarily drunk people doing it. I think it's just, this is just kind of the sad sports, sports culture that we have now of if you pay the price of admission, for some reason, it feels like you are entitled to do or say whatever you want to the athletes. That's, I don't think you can pin it all on drunks. No, and I don't think alcohol sales. I mean, look, there's there's profits to be discussed here, and the tournaments have had enough go, had a tough enough go of it, of, a, of the pandemic and quarantine and everything else, and playing without fans. And no, that that's not the answer because people are still going. Then, the, then they're just going to get drunker through the first nine holes than they did since they can't drink the last nine holes. So that's that's not going to solve this. And I I'm going to kind of take another approach to this, and I always seem to have this conversation every two years for the Ryder Cup. Because inevitably what's going to happen is things are going to get set at the Ryder Cup, both in the United States and when it's played in Europe, that are uncomfortable to players and, and sort of color outside the norms of what we consider is acceptable in golf. And we always get upset about it, and it turns into a story. And next thing you know, Ian Poulter is complaining about American fans. And, and my argument to that is always golf wants to be a mainstream sport. We're not a mainstream sport. We try. We get close from time to time. Tiger Woods certainly. PJ Tour very much wants golf to be a mainstream story. Absolutely. If, you're, if, you're, if you remember their Live Under Par campaign, they were trying to push fans to be a part of the action. I don't think yes. they. I think they meant like streaming it on Snapchat. I don't think they meant trying to change the outcome. In a sense, some of the players. And in this particular case, that if, if this is what you want, and we do, I mean the. The powers that be in golf want golf to be a mainstream sport. If that's what you want, this is what it comes with. Anyone that's ever been to a baseball game at Yankee Stadium will roll their eyes at the idea that a player gets upset because I said, go Brooksy to him and his name is Bryson. Like, that's the most offensive thing I can say to you? Because trust me, they can come up with much more offensive things to say to athletes who go in there. And it happens across the spectrum of sports. Every other sport, you end up with some very, very bad things being said to players. In this particular case, they have found the needle that bug, that bugs Bryson, but I still don't think it's crossing over the line. I feel for Bryson. I really do. He's in a really tough position, but this is not crossing the line. They're simply heckling him, and this happens in every sport. And it's, it's happened in golf before. This is not the first time that, yeah. that golfers have been heckled. I think of Monty and Sergio in particular over the past 20 years of, of players who really had a rough go of it in America. Now, it is a little bit odd that you have an American who's getting a antagonized by American fans and he might be the first U.S. Ryder Cupper in history who on home soil will hear it from some of uh, his his own fans and, and look Bryson really is and has been in a no-win situation this started the memorial when the Brooksy calls started and Bryson was put in a difficult position if he says that it bothers him then he looks weak and he's looking at it as an excuse and a, a, a player of his not just physical stature but also uh, just his stature in the game should be able to shake off some of those jeers, right? Like they're not accompanied by curse words. They're not uh, anything else that you would be deemed uh, societally inappropriate. It's merely calling another player's uh, name at you. Like that's not, that's not the worst offense that you can think of. So he couldn't say that he, it really bothered him. And so he went the route where he said that it doesn't bother him at all. Well, that just encourages you, right? Like that is encouraging fans when you say like, oh, I'm, I think he actually used the word he was honored, that he was honored to be called that and quote unquote living inside of Brooks's head rent free. Like that's where this took a turn for the worse. And it really was just a no win situation. And now you have a point where the, the toothpaste is kind of out of the tube. Like Jay Monahan is supposed to speak with the press on Tuesday. He can say that, you know, this has gone too far and that he hopes that fans are better behaved. Um, I think Bryson, he's not going to, but if he somehow went in front of a microphone and said, Hey, look, you know, I was in a no win situation before and I would just like this to stop. Like, yeah, it does affect me. Um, it's beginning to affect some of my playing partners. Like I just wish this would stop. I think he could be viewed somewhat more empathetically 
I'm not sure that would actually solve his woes. I think this is going to stick with him, not just now, but for the foreseeable future. And that's unfortunate. Um, but I'm not sure what can be done. Tour security cannot throw out fans for merely calling him Brooksy. It just cannot and should not happen. No, and consider it, like, pay this forward. Considering that if they did try, if this is where we ended up, where fans are getting kicked out of events for, for heckling Go Brooksy to, to someone named Bryson DeChambeau, it simply puts us further down the road away from being a mainstream sport. And, and again, I'll go back to golf, specifically the PGA Tour, is fighting tooth and nail to get the headlines, to, to, to try to put itself out front. This is the way you do it. And I know it's uncomfortable, and I do feel sorry for, for Bryson because he is in this situation not entirely of his own making. Now, there have been plenty of situations. There have been plenty of things he's done that has put himself into this situation. If, he, if, if Bryson was not being called Brooksy, I promise you that fans would find something else to be chirping at him for. This is just the one that really seems to get under his skin the most. But I promise you that there would be other barbs. Now, there were some moments on Sunday that I watched that did concern me where there's some yelling in his backswing. And I, I talked to players in New Jersey two weeks ago at the Northern Trust about this. As we get closer and closer to something of real-time betting on the PGA Tour, it is concerning, the idea that the fans can have an outcome. If you go to a football game or a basketball game, it doesn't matter how loud you yell, you really don't have an outcome. You have no say in that outcome. I mean, you can be a loud fan and they appreciate you, but you're not having any say in the outcome. In this particular case, you're yelling in the middle of a backswing. That can affect the outcome. And that does become concerning, not so much at the Ryder Cup, but I'm thinking more if, if that impacted him all at all yesterday, it cost him millions of dollars in a title. And I think that's where the tour needs to be concerned. But I don't know, again, to go back to the original premise, what do you do? I'm very interested to hear what Jay Monahan uh, has to say this week. I think it's, it's the number one agenda item uh, for when he does his annual state of the uh, tour address. What else do you want think, me to ask him? Since I'm going to have him uninterrupted so for 30 I, minutes. So I actually do. I think what also needs to be addressed, and this might just be selfishly speaking. And I know where you're going with this. Bryson DeChambeau's boycott of the press. Mm-hmm. Because before not press, this little... Not the press, the written press, to be clear. Before this um, little heckling incident, which to be quite honest with you, is, is not new. This has been happening for months now, and it just so happened to, to gain a lot of traction on social media. It is not new that Bryson is being heckled at golf tournaments. Just this one particular incident um, appears to have caused some mainstream action. The boycott, though, is something that is new and is ongoing and does not seem to have uh, any end in sight. If you've been living under a rock or have not visited golfchannel.com or listened to this podcast or gone on social media, Bryson has spoken only to the tour's broadcast and radio partners since on October 4th, he made some controversial comments about COVID-19 uh, to yours truly, as well as ESPN's Bob Herrick and Golf Week's Steve DiMeglio, stung by the backlash and angered by what he told me, what Bryson told me is what he feels is unfair treatment in the media. Uh, he has stopped doing what is one of his professional responsibilities. Rex, I do think it is important to note here. It is a professional responsibility. It is not an obligation. It is not a requirement. There is nowhere in the PGA tour media regulations that states that a player must speak with journalists before, during, or after their round of competition. And I actually think if you ask Jay Monahan about it this week, which you will, because you're a good soldier, um, I don't think the tour is going to push any sort of agenda to make athletes talk. I think the culture right now is is a little bit too um, cognizant of mental health when it comes to athletes. Um, and that's just been one of the major storylines. I don't see the PGA Tour pushing that. However, that's not to say that we can't ask. And it's just an impossibly bad PR strategy for Bryson to continue this boycott of the press because it makes the Ryder Cup press conference, which he is not going to be able to slide out of um, that much more must-see TV, which just creates a distraction. And this goes back to the earlier story that I told about David Stern. He, he was a commissioner. He was a committee of one. 
So he could unilaterally decide, okay, these are punishment for players. You have to talk to the media. Jay Monahan does not have that ability. As a matter of fact, he would actually get pushback. If he, this was, this would have to be part of a very, very long and drawn out process. There's the, there's a pack committee of 16 players. And then once they sort of sign off on it, they don't have final say, but they all kind of need to tentatively agree with the idea that there needs to be some sort of punishment that goes along with the idea that you're right. This is part of being a professional. It's talking with the media. It's not always comfortable, but if you go back through the history of the game, players have done it. Tiger Woods has done it more than anyone Tiger's else. given thousands Thousands. And he's probably blown off the press. Let's call it 25 times. I, if I, I, I was thinking about this last week and, and I could be, I couldn't come up with 10. Like I couldn't fill two hands when I was thinking about it. And I've covered him almost the majority of his career, but for Jay to push this through, it would be a long drawn out process and he would have to get it cleared by the players. And I don't think there's any motivation. I don't think there's any reason why the players would want to do this simply because they don't want to be in the same position. And I think to a lot of players, what Bryson is doing, and I'm less and less concerned about Bryson's boycott of the print media than I am about the, what the message this is sending to oh, other players. It's an absolutely terrible precedent that Bryson is setting here. And if the tour does not crack down and do something about it, if they do not just check his actions in some way, shape, or form, then other marquee players are going to look at Bryson, who is not talking and has boycotted the press, and wonder why they have to go through this post-round media gauntlet. Like, if Bryson's not doing it, well, why would I? So then you have Rory bailing out, then you have Jordan bailing out, and then you have Rom bailing out, and you have DJ bailing out, and Brooks bailing out. And and who are you left with? At at that point, you have a major journalistic and ethical dilemma on your hands of, of your players are not fulfilling what is their responsibility as a professional athlete. Yes, if you have players like Rory and Jordan, as you pointed out, who are have always been forthcoming with their time, they're effusive. They they take the time to try to answer your questions. Like they they've always been giving to the press. But I think I think we've already seen it where there was a couple of rounds in New Jersey where Rory didn't talk and Jordan didn't talk, and that was not the norm a year ago. I think this is starting to become more and more the norm. That's my more con- pressing concern in the age that we live in now. For us, the written press I'm talking about, to put our fist down and demand that Bryson step in front of a microphone, I'm not comfortable with that. Because in my mind, he's clearly dealing with a lot of things. And we've seen this in other sports. I don't want to be part of the problem. If he's got issues that he needs to deal with, let him deal with that. Like, I'm less and less concerned about him personally than I am about the message this is sending. I mean, and, and to Bryson's credit, he was consistent last week. He's, he told me that he was not going to talk to writers again. And he didn't talk to writers after he shot 60. And he didn't talk to anyone, whether it was writers, uh, PJ Tour Radio, a television partner. He didn't talk to anyone after a playoff loss. And I have to tell you, Rex, I, you've been doing this twice as long as I have. I don't ever recall a playoff loser refi- refusing to do any media after a playoff loss. They might not talk to the writers, but they will definitely talk to TV and or radio if you lose a playoff and you get the three quick quotes and they're out of there. I don't ever recall a playoff loser just straight up stiff arming, regardless of the circumstances of that playoff loss. I am interested, however, Rex, to think about this scenario. What would have happened if Bryson had won that golf tournament? Bryson would, oh, it would have become won, uncomfortable, yes. He would have won the penultimate event of the PJ Tour season. He would have been number one in the FedEx Cup standings, it is really hard for me to think that the PGA Tour would be okay with a scenario in which their FedEx Cup leader of their precious FedEx Cup would decline an opportunity to showcase the playoffs. Like, there is there is almost no way that the Tour is okay with that. And, and just flash, spinning it forward to the Tour Championship, there are 11 players and one commissioner on the interview list this week at Eastlake. Bryce Nishambo, who's number three in the standings, is is not one of those players. And he's the player that everyone wants to talk about. Well, and I'll, I'll spin it forward even more than that. Sunday at Eastlake, he has collected the, the $15 million bonus. He's won it all. FedEx wants him to talk to everyone and stand in front of a microphone. His sponsors, closing. his myriad yeah. sponsors, who we can't wait to rattle off in interviews. Yeah. That's going to be the bigger issue. And, and there, there will be no filter in that situation. I mean, all gloves will be off. I mean, if he wins and Sunday night, he finally sits down in front of writers. It, it's going to be very little about what happened on the golf course. And that's where I don't think he and his team are thinking this far enough ahead. 
that eventually he's going to have to sit down. I don't down think do it's that. Bryson's team. I've talked to, to Bryson's agent Bryson I don't think so on either. numerous occasions. Falcoff told me he's tried to get Bryson. Yeah. No, I don't think so either. And he just won't do it. Bryson is his own crisis manager right now. And it's just an impossibly bad PR strategy. It really is. Like, no, even, I, even I, if you just remove our biases as writers who are affected by this, I don't think we even really need to hear from Bryce at this point because he's going to be so cautious with what he says that they're basically just the, the answers that we get for our stories are going are to be fruitless at this point. I think the days of him popping off about God knows what are are over for the foreseeable future. Um, I, and I would, at, I would at this point, it's just the it's just the precedent of him not talking. I'm getting on a flight first thing tomorrow morning to fly up to East Lake to cover the tour championship. And I was just asked in an interview, my thoughts on the format. And I, I just feel like we're far enough in. Can I just defer to John Rahm and, and just be done with it? I mean, isn't that my best way to handle crisis management at this point? That saying, look, world, it's world, world number one is, is usually a good direction to go. Yeah. I'm just going to defer to what he says that it, Patrick Cantlay is going to start at 10 and a par. He has to sit on a two stroke lead for the next three days. Yeah. Three days. And beyond that, I think after Thursday's opening round, I find that most people get lost in the weeds and they decide, okay, never mind how they started. Now we've got a real leaderboard. Let's go with it. And my argument has always been that for all its flaws, and there are plenty of flaws we can sit here and pick it apart, two things have come to fruition throughout this. One, we're playing meaningful golf at a time of year when normally we don't play meaningful golf. And two, that meaningful golf includes pretty much the world's top players. So those two things, and they might be playing just for a lot of money, and that rubs some people the wrong way, but those two things are an accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of tired. This is year 15 of the FedEx Cup. It's gone through numerous iterations over those past 15 years. I don't think that this is the answer, and I don't think, I, I don't think it's the answer because we have not yet run into the doomsday scenario. That's not to say we, we will eventually, uh, but the doomsday scenario, of course, is a player who – absolutely has a gangbusters year wins 10 times wins let's say three majors and he gets the tour championship hooks his opening tee shot at east lake out of bounds and poof the undisputed number one player all season long loses his precious two shot advantage uh, on the very opening hole of a 72 hole tournament that is the doomsday scenario that has not yet come to fruition i'm sure it will eventually um, and that is the reason why i'm not totally sold on this staggered start format i'm too tired to think of a better alternative and so I just kind of grin and bear it. Um, I don't know I don't if there is one. I mean, we've done this for a long time, and we've, we've, we've bantied it about, and we've probably talked and written. I, I, think, I think, Rex, what has to happen is you have to have a bigger payout for the regular season winner. I think more needs to be devoted to Kyle Morikawa, the number one player in the FedEx Cup standings at the end of the Wyndham Championship. It can't just be this Comcast bonus that he's getting. It needs to be a gigantic payoff for playing the best during the PJ Tour season. And then I think the playoffs should just be an absolute free-for-all. You can either have, like, the cut mean something, where if you miss the cut at the Northern Trust, like, your season, your your playoff runs over. Then it's an actually a, a legit playoff, a legit postseason run where you have to play your best golf. You can either have it, have it like that, or you can get to the Tour Championship and make it this crazy match play, knockout type, um, scenario, which could be interesting to watch, but you could have a, a dud finale for, for $15 million. To me, that is the easiest solution, is you need to make the regular season title more important. Because right now, Kyle Morikawa, who, until a couple of weeks ago, I think you would probably put him in front as probably your player of the year. The Open champion, won a WGC, played well in a couple other uh, big-time big events as well, along with John Rahm. He has slipped all the way from first place in the FedEx Cup standings all the way to 11th. I mean, he's beginning the Tour Championship now at three under par, seven shots back. That's not to say that's insurmountable over 72 holes, but his chances of being declared the FedEx Cup champion, the best, the quote-unquote best player in the PGA Tour season, has drastically been reduced in just two weeks' time. Yes, and just speaking personally, I would have liked to have known about that lingering back injury before I picked him first in our fantasy draft. Speaking of which, how do we forget? Uh, we stand so we're, we're yes, folks. We are going to get to the Ryder Cup. Uh, Rex is jumping ahead here. The fantasy team update is as follows. I, of course, did have one Patrick Cantley share, so I was very invested. Uh, in the yeah, I couldn't tell for the 15 text messages you sent me on Sunday. Oh, that, that's amazing. So I have uh, extended my lead, and it's rather significant. Um, so we are entering the third and final week. I have let's 
let's let's call it roughly a one point eight million dollar lead in our fantasy challenge. You actually had a good week. Roy finished fourth for you. Dustin Johnson back ended um, a T six. You had a couple other guys inside the top twenty five. Besides Cantley and Rom, um, I didn't have any player finish inside the top twenty. However, it's because we talked we touched on this last week, and um, of course the prize slash punishment for that is. Uh, one of us wearing a sign that says I suck at fancy golf during the Ryder cup uh, press conferences on Thursday, but you and I did not think through this. The well, we did. The I FedEx, did. The winner of the FedEx cup gets $15 million. Yeah. Second place gets $5 million. It yeah. is virtually impossible for one of us to overtake the other. If we do not have the winner. True. In other words, if I have Cantlay and he wins $15 million, you basically have to run the table of, second through seventh place yeah. to even have a, an opportunity to, to overtake me. No, I think I did the math on this. I think I would have had to run the tables on the first two playoff events to even have a chance if you won it all. Like I, I did okay. the math on this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's not, it's not even technically possible. No. However, because we're idiots and we didn't think that through and neither of us picked Tony Finau, who was number two in the standings or Bryson DeChambeau, neither one of us, uh, have those players on our rosters, even though we went 14 players deep uh, for this playoff draft. 14 players, and we did not pick Tony Finau or Bryson DeChambeau, um, which is very interesting. So we need to. We, we still need to, we still have virtually half the field, and I'm still confident yeah, one of to, us. Will, we need will to end root up with for one of those picks. Yes, that way we can really have some drama. We don't. We don't, we don't want Patrick Cantley just kind of. I mean, I do selfishly, so I can watch you wear this stupid sign, but. It's not going to be very dramatic if Patrick Cantley wins by four shots and it's basically done and dusted because he's going to win a $15 million bonus, right? Uh, it's not good for me. However, I can kind of see where I'm fine with it. And I, I knew that we were getting into this. Like we didn't talk it through before. Next year. No, we really just an absolutely stupid idea. Yeah. A positively yeah. stupid idea that's going to have some pretty um, humiliating uh, repercussions. Uh, I do want to, before we go, Rex, uh, get into the Ryder Cup. Last week after the BMW Championship was the final week for U.S. qualifiers. The European side has two more qualifying weeks to go. But Patrick Cantley, by virtue of his BMW title, leapfrogged all the way, and including Tony Finau, and got that sixth and final spot. He joins Kyle Morikawa, Bryson DeChambeau, Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepka and Justin Thomas as the automatic qualifiers. This is the final week to audition for a spot on Steve Stricker's squad. He's going to make the picks, what, two days after the tour championship? He's not going to do it on Labor Day. That's uh, Wednesday. Wednesday at 8 o'clock on Golf Channel. Wednesday morning. There you go. Uh, day before uh, Lily Lavner is born. Um, so that'll be a nice. very exciting day um, for all of us. Let's go through these would-be captain's picks. We've done this over the past couple of weeks. We've called them partial locks. We've called them semi-locks. Um, Tony Finau, Xander Shoffley, Jordan Spieth are seven, eight, and nine in the standings. Those guys are bona fide locks, done and dusted. Uh, you've already got them fitted for uniforms. No big deal. Harris English, to me, um, should be a very – how do I want to put this? He should be a near lock. Um, I know there's been some, some hairy bashing – um, and his inability to perhaps get it done, some uh, match play inexperience as well, has not played in a, a match play team competition since the 2011 Walker Cup, um, which was a whole decade ago. Uh, but to me, he's been one of the best American players of the past year. Um, his career resurgence deserves a pick. Here's where it gets interesting, Rex. And I do think Daniel Berger, we, I think we've called him a semi-lock. Well-rounded player, 11th in strokes gain total. Um, I think he'd be a good fit. Patrick Reed. We had kind of discounted him on the podcast last week, if you if you recall. We we both thought that at number twenty six, I believe he was in the rankings, uh, with withdrawing from the BMW because of the sprained ankle and the double pneumonia. We thought he was going to drop outside the top thirty. Not true. That was fake news. Patrick Reed is in the thirtieth and final spot in the FedEx Cup standings. As of this podcast taping at 3.37 p.m. Eastern time on Monday, we do not yet know if Patrick Reed will be teeing it up at Eastlake. I would think it would be highly unlikely, uh, but we cannot say that for sure. If Patrick Reed does not tee it up, do you foresee any way that Stricker can pick him? 
Uh, no, I do not. And I just went back and read the story that I wrote on Monday at the Northern Trust when we got the news. And my line was, it's possible he could fall outside the top 30 after next week's PNW championship. So I'm pretty sure I couched myself fine. No, uh, on the podcast, we definitely said he was out. Uh, I think it was more wishful thinking on my part because I came down pretty hard on him, if you remember correctly. Uh, I would, yep. Yes, I did. And if he does not play, which I would imagine he will not, we don't know if he's going to play or not. We don't know if he's healthy of 100% healthy after going through the double pneumonia. Uh, I think he would have to have a very, very good week. I just don't see, again, that the shine has come off the, the Captain America thing. And I don't know that Steve Stricker has enough to yeah, he's got enough issues in that team room right now. That's an easy out. That being said, I'm not as high on Berger as you are. I'm not saying that I wouldn't make him a pick. He certainly has played well enough, and he's 12th on the list, and in a lot of people's minds, he's earned it. I, but I just don't know where, where Steve would go with these last two picks because there's no clear-cut favorite in my mind. You have Patrick Reed, Daniel Berger, Webb Simpson, Scotty Scheffler. That's 11 to 14. And I could probably make an argument for all of them to get a pick, and I could probably make an argument for all of them not to get a pick. This is going to be one of the, and it, this comes down to the idea that, look, he probably didn't want six picks. This was sort of thrust upon him by the pandemic and the PGA of America and a Ryder Cup that got postponed a year. But this is going to be tough pick, deciding which, which two of those should be the final two picks. <laughs> and, I, and I'm the guy who actually wants the captains to have to make 12 picks. Like, oh, like God, do, no. do, do your job, do your due diligence, and, and, no and make the team – in your own making. Like, that's what I want to see the Ryder Cup become. It's never going to get that way because there's too many hurt feelings and it's too big of a deal for these professionals' resumes um, with these with these. I would point to the U.S. Walker that's Cup the, process. That doesn't work. I mean, there's too much there's too much cloak and dagger in that U.S. Walker Cup process. For the, yeah, I, I even, don't like that even, at all. Even, even now they have automatic qualifiers based on the world ranking. So the, even, even they've kind of shied away from captain or the committee having having too much say. I'd love to see. It's never going to happen. But I, I would love to see it. I don't. So if you look at these plus these pros and cons for some of these would be picks, I don't see any cons to Daniel Berger that you that you threw out there. Like he's one of the most well-rounded players in the PGA Tour. He's well liked among the the JTs and the Spees and the Cantleys and, and players of of either that ilk or that age group. Um, he does have Cup experience playing on that 2017 Presidents Cup team. Uh, which was victorious at Liberty National. Like, I don't, I don't think he's going to be overcome by the moment. Like, I don't see any cons for, for Berger that I do see some pretty significant cons for the other players. Uh, there, there are significant cons for the other players. I, I could argue that Berger's inexperience is probably something that a captain would want to shy away from, given the fact that if you take Harris English, which we assume he's going to. He's got more experience than Harris English. He's got more experience than Scotty Scheffler. He's got more experience than Sam Burns. Uh, Webb Simpson becomes the interesting conversation to me because I don't know if he's 100% healthy, to be honest with you. And the other half and the other part of the, this equation that I would say in a plus column for him, Stricker compare him with anybody. And by that, I mean, he compare him with Bryson DeChambeau because that's what Webb Simpson has done his entire career. He's been the guy in the envelope that they always pull out at every event where if there's a troubled child in the team room, Webb, you're the man, go out, be nice, play nice, try to get a point. If not, we understand. I do agree that Webb, um, he is a potential glue guy here. Um, I don't think the Ryder Cup is going to be won or lost based on Webb Simpson's performance. I don't think we would see him in anything other than one, maybe two foursomes sessions. That is where he has played primarily um, throughout his Ryder Cup year. Webb Simpson, even by his own estimation, has had a down year. He did not qualify for the tour championship. So Stricker would be picking a player who didn't even make it uh, to the season finale. We look at the pros for Webb Simpson. Yeah, he's malleable. You can put him with a whole lot of other players. He's a veteran. He's been through this before. He's a strong iron player. He's got a great tight little short game. He would now have two to three weeks off to get his game or his body, um, in your opinion, um, in a better position. And I think when it comes down, like we're not privy to these discussions, so we're just kind of spitballing here. But Stricker is going to know where his team is weak when it comes to pairings. By and large, when you look at PJ Tour players and the best PJ Tour players or the players who are the best in the world ranking, which the Americans primarily are, those players are birdie machines, right? Like all of those guys are going to make four to five birdies around. You look at Scotty Scheffler. He is a tailor-made player for four balls. Makes a ton of birdies. Six on the PJ Tour in birdie average. What's more difficult to find 
is a player who can excel in the alternate shot slash foursome session, a player who is accurate off the tee, who hits a high percentage of the greens or is a very strong iron player who can get up and down from basically anywhere. Patrick Reed was going to fill that spot for Steve Stricker, assuming that Patrick Reed is not going to be able to go or is not going to be picked. And if Stricker believes that that is a weakness of this American team, then yeah, Webb Simpson makes a lot of sense in foursomes. He is an automatic plug and play, throw him in the foursome session. I think that if you just look at the roster, not knowing anything about what they're thinking of potential pairings, uh, to me, you would probably err on the side of having guys who could excel in the foursomes over four balls. I was surprised by a phenomenon today when I tweeted out the, the final standings and said that Stricker was on the clock and he needs to make some decisions. How many people came at me with number 22, Will Zalatoris, needs to be a pick? Even like, I'm, a, I'm a Zalatoris fanboy. You just I mean, make the argument. I got ratioed, and, and I'm not against Will Zalatoris. I just don't know. I don't think any captain should ever go to 22 to pick somebody. But I was kind of just shocked that out of the blue, like, no Phil? No, I mean, why not Max Holman if we're going to pick a name out of the hat? I mean, Zalatoris, for, well, I mean, he would have been inside the top 30 when the playoffs began, but because of the stupid PJ Tour rule, he didn't qualify. He's going to be playing in Europe over these next couple of weeks. It's going to be too late for him. I mean, it's just, it's just not going to happen. He's going to play on plenty of American Ryder Cup and President's Cup teams in the future. He's probably going to be at Quail Hollow next year on the President's Cup team. But I kind of put him in that Sam Burns category where he, he just kind of popped a little bit too late. And they don't have enough either data or intel on a Zalatoris or a Burns where you can safely put him um, among the top 12, know who he's going to be partnering with, know how he's going to handle the stage, um, and and just insert him into that lineup of 12. That is perfect for the President's Cup. The President's Cup is where you kind of try it out. You, 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 you build towards the future. The Ryder Cup is not a time where you say, hey, Sam Burns, how, how are you going to handle the, the opening tee shot? At are you calling the President's Cup preseason? Are, are you calling it preseason football? Is that what you're calling it? Yes. Until the, pre- until the international team wins two, uh, all I'm asking for is two. Uh, in a row or just two period just get to a second just get to a second win until then it is basically just a proving ground uh for up-and-coming american talent uh you did not mention phil mickelson uh there's there's been a lot of idle chatter of whether stricker's gonna lean on an old hand and take phil who has uh count him one one top 20 finish outside of his pga championship victory any chance that Phil is actually the guy who Strix takes. No, this will be a fun conversation next Monday when I get back from Atlanta and we can sit down and we can kind of we have a more clear picture and we can maybe have a little fun, go on the record and try to figure out what's exactly. We're going to have two pods next week, Rex. That's right. After the, after the picks too. Uh, but no, I mean, Phil is not someone that's on my radar for that. I mean, I'm, just, I'm more curious about vice captain because that's what he's either going to end up being if he wants it or if he doesn't want it. I'm not quite sure because that's where he is in his career. As you pointed out, one top 20 finish. And like the PGA Championship was unbelievable. It was a special time of the year. But it, it was, was a fluke. It was very much a fluke. You cannot put Phil Mickelson in that team room as a player and let him do what he's always done. And that's cherry pick one of the young players to try to draft off of him, which is what he's always done later in his career. You absolutely cannot do that. You just, you don't need the handholding. Like if Phil is a vice captain, he could do that. And then some, because he can be everywhere on the golf course, pumping up guys who maybe need a little bit of boost or calming down or someone to, to crack a joke or, or, or organizing some activities at night. Like you don't, you don't need Phil on the roster to get the full benefit and value of having Phil Mickelson being a part of, of team USA. I don't understand what value he would bring to a roster of 12 when there's clearly two dozen more Americans uh, who would be better suited for that pick uh, right now than, than Phil. Um, obviously you're selfishly going to root for your own guys um, for the FedEx cup title. Who do you, who's your, who's your pick to win this week? Uh, I mean, Cantlay is playing so well, but the person in this is me rooting for my own guy. I'll take it. I'm a Hummer. Roy McIlroy played really well last week, and we know what he's done at East Lake. I think he's been pencil whipped a couple of times, and he's won the Starting FedEx. Starting at two under. Uh, I, I I believe that 
eight strokes back is a lot of strokes. So he's going to need, yeah, he's going to need a lot of help from Patrick Cantlay, but I don't know that eight strokes back over four rounds is a lot of strokes. I mean, certainly you have conversations with players over the years, Xander being the primary one that he's realized the importance of positioning because he's gotten burned by it a couple of times. I think in this particular case, I can see Patrick Cantlay maybe having a tough first day and bringing a bunch of guys into it. But I, I like either Rory or one of those top two guys. Cause again, Tony Finau had himself another week. I mean, he, he finished with, I think with a 63 on Sunday at Kays Valley. I can easily see him doing it. It, it is interesting that you look at the top three guys in that leaderboard. They do not have good records at Eastlake. Patrick Cantlay has never finished better than 20th in what is a 30 man competition at the Tour Championship. Tony Finau never finished better than 7th. Bryson DeChambeau never finished better than 12th, and he's had some pretty ugly finishes as well. You know that Bermuda Rough is going to be really juicy. He's not going to be able to tear that golf course apart like he did a soft, defenseless Caves Valley. I mean, if you if you miss the fairway, it's going to be very penal. I see I see Bryson having a difficult week, and which is why I think the, I think the leaderboard actually begins with John Rahm at 6 under par. This is a player who has a good record at Eastlake, uh, he had another top 10 finish at the BMW championship. And I think he wants to put an exclamation point on what has been a, a great, but, but it, it, it still feels like it could have been even more monstrous than it already, than it already was. I think the PGA Tour player of the year is very important to John Rom. I think the FedEx cup title is very important to John Rom. And this could be the second title that he would have and kind of the exclamation point um, for for his year that that really kind of made him um, into the into the superstar that we've kind of been portending over the past uh, couple of years. Rex, you were uh, en route to Atlanta on Tuesday morning. Look forward to uh, getting all of your dispatches uh, from the tour championship. It is sure to be an interesting address with PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan. We will wrap it up all next week on the Golf Central podcast presented by Cowway Golf. We'll break down the Tour Championship, the FedEx Cup, make our picks for Player of the Year. The Solheim Cup is going to be wrapping up on Monday. We'll have a recap on that. And then, of course, we'll look ahead to just a day later when Steve Stricker will make his picks for the U.S. Ryder Cup team. We'll have an emergency pod. Rex, you and I will do it again. We'll have an emergency pod on Wednesday reacting Stricker's picks. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Golf Central Podcast presented by Callaway Golf. Talk to you all next week. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA.